Welcome back to another episode of Working Wife, Happy Life. We took a couple of weeks off, and it's good to be back in the studio. We're now in mid-July of 2020. We've made it through the first half of this crazy year, and I'm terrified and hopeful for what the rest of the year may bring. I keep calling it the COVID coaster, and then I get the great space coaster theme song playing in my head. I know that dates me, but if you know, you know. But yes, the COVID coaster, life is up and down and all around, and we are all experiencing so many different emotions on any given day. I read somewhere that it's an exhaustion that has nothing to do with sleep. And for those of you who are regular listeners, you know sleep is an issue for me. However, it's oddly been going pretty well for a few weeks, so I hope I didn't just jinx it. Anyway, hang in there, everybody, throughout the ups and downs. I hope this episode isn't up. Today's guest is Matthew Frey, and he is actually our first male guest on Working Wife Happy Life. I found Matt through a New York Times article that a previous guest, Jenny Blake, had shared with me about his work of coaching husbands on how to avoid divorce. This career turn for him came after he penned an article titled, She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink. He posted this on his personal site, Must Be This Tall to Ride, and it went viral. It's a catchy title, and for most wives of that guy, we all know it's not about the dishes. Matt turned his heartache and anguish into a battle cry for men to acknowledge that not doing their share of the emotional, logistical, and invisible labor that goes into managing and running a household and a family is just not going to fly anymore. You can learn more about Matt on his site, mustbethistalltoride.com, where he shares the incredible efforts he has in play from books to interviews to television opportunities. He is kind, open, and genuinely singularly focused on helping couples realize just how toxic their patterns are to the health of their relationships. Enjoy my conversation with Matt Frey. Um, So you just shared, you know, we were talking before I started recording this about you know, if there's anything that comes out that you want to uh, edit before we go to release that, you know, we'd be happy to do that for you. And you shared that, you know, you're kind of an open book. And I think that's what's so important about these types of conversations is if we close off or don't get as raw and gritty as it needs to be, we're not going to see the work done in the spaces that you and I operate in. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, so just for background, now I learned about you from a previous podcast guest who shared your article about um, the work that you do and the lessons that you learned. Um, and as you may know, I work a lot with breadwinning women, both a community inside my company at Google and a community outside that I've started working wife, happy life. And one of the biggest issues that comes up is this idea of the added kind of workload or invisible workload that a lot of women bear while also being the breadwinner. Um, And so I found your work fascinating. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your story and kind of how you got to the work that you do now? Yeah, yeah, happy to. Thank you. Um, My wife left on April 1st, 2013. I perceived myself to be a good guy, wanted to be married. Um, We were together 13 years, married for nine. And um, I 
Ooh, I don't want to pretend like it was all, it was like bliss. Um, you know, we certainly had our share of issues and then the last 18 months were, were, were dreadful and I slept in a different bedroom. So like, I'm not trying to act like it came out of nowhere, but it still mattered. Um, There's evidenced by the precise date, although April 1st is certainly easy to remember. And um, I took it really hard. And um, it's I, the irony is, the, the, the sad, tragic irony is, I had to feel the, the sort of invisible emotional pain and brokenness that people sort of carry around in order to be motivated to start to understand empathy and what it meant to like get outside my own head, my own body, to, uh, I, I didn't know, I'd lived a pretty charmed existence, right? Um, certainly not with like material wealth or anything like that, but I was like rich in friends and family. I was rich in not having bad things happen to me. So when divorce was the first really truly awful thing to ever happen to me at age 34, Seven years ago, I'd been so, I guess, emotionally sheltered, mm -hmm. privileged, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, if we want to get into this idea of being like white, straight guy in the United States, um, I, I, you're, you're so blind. And if we want to use the word privilege, we're so blind in our comfort sometimes that we fail to see what other people deal with. And then because we don't experience pain from some of these ideas, it's so like mathematically easy to dismiss them as like statistical outliers, I feel like. And um, I don't know. Anyway, so that's what happened. So what happened was I was an absolute mess back in April, May, June um, 2013. And I had to figure it out. And I was a former journalist and I, I wrote that writing is what I do. And so uh, a phonotherapist, after I'd had a, a few too much to drink, <laughs> called a phonotherapist on one of those like 800 numbers that the HR department at the office gave you. And I was talking to her for a little bit and it was, you know, it was ridiculous and dysfunctional. But she's like, hey, maybe you should write it down. And I'm like, okay. Um, and I think she meant like privately journal, mm -hmm. but I put it on the internet because I'm me. And <laughs> I didn't think, I didn't think anybody would ever read it. It just, you know, you don't care when you kind of feel like emotionally rock bottom, you don't care. Yeah. So, but, but then people did read it. And what was interesting is I didn't set out to like try to do any good in the world necessarily. I wasn't trying to like cause harm, but the writing began, the blog began because I thought it would be interesting to share like this dysfunctional, like hapless divorced single dad trying to like navigate his way through this like strange dark new world. And it was going to be, you know, sort of like a black comedy almost. And what happened was very, very quickly people sort of gravitated to the storytelling I was doing and I was getting a lot of sort of positive feedback about like the rawness and vulnerability of it. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me very, very quickly that people were like feeling this on like a deep level in the way that I experience like the stuff that really impacts me, right? Like the art that impacts me, the, the music, the film, the whatever, the books. I'm like, oh my God, like the thing I'm doing here matters to people. Yeah. And as soon as I started to like digest this idea and get this feedback, I very quickly abandoned the idea that I was going to, I felt a responsibility mm -hmm. to handle that with care. Yes. And if people were going to read stuff I wrote, 
I wasn't going to contribute to dysfunction. I wasn't going to contribute to something that didn't matter, like like bullshit stories about you know my dating life or something like that. So it very quickly became this self-reflective journey about trying to understand what went wrong in my marriage because I, I didn't get it. Like uh, I, people people challenge this idea a lot that that a, a grown adult that's really competent at work you know, that's 30, 40, 50 years old and has had wild success in life um, and has demonstrated competence and intelligence and the ability to like learn skills and succeed in the world, that that person, often men, can't um, grasp these ideas about emotional intelligence, about the invisible mental load, about invalidation and healthy communication and all of these things that very subtly insidiously like damage our relationship slowly like one little conversation one little day at a time and i get that but i um i maintain that there are lots and lots of very decent people and it's not that they're doing bad things to cause harm it's that they're doing things that are sort of mathematically like benign to them mm -hmm. and not calculating for the idea that they are in very real life in a measurable way damaging someone else right that's the great disconnect for me be, and then and then when they're told about it, it becomes this like character defense and it's not about character. And and so so begins this like story I had to understand about myself. It wasn't I was a shit person and I was out to get my wife, even though that's how I treated her when she tried to communicate with me about the unhealthy things that were going on in our marriage. I kept missing this idea that just because I intended good, just because something she said didn't make sense to me or didn't hurt me or didn't matter to me, doesn't mean in a very real specific way she didn't experience damage from it. Right. In the same way I can touch my arm right here and it's fine because it's fine. But if somebody had like a second degree burn wound, like hiding under the same like sleeve and I touch them there, they would have a radically different experience. And if I treat okay. them like they're being ridiculous, because everyone else doesn't do that when I touch them there. Um, I'm, it, it seems like sort of a logical interpretation until you understand there's the burn one there. Right. And, and that, it, I think metaphor, excuse me, the metaphorically is what we're doing in our, in our marriages, our relationships. Yeah, it's like that bruise where when you take it in isolation and you take one instance, it's not gonna unwind a marriage if you load the dishwasher wrong. But if you're repeatedly having the same conversation over and over again, it's actually telling your partner a completely different story of, I, I'm not listening to you. I don't hear you. It doesn't matter to me. That's not a big deal. There's some gaslighting there. You know, there's all of these different things that contribute into that one piece. Um, and what was, so just to back up a little bit on your story, because it sounds like, you know, it's not necessarily that the rug was pulled out from under you. It's that you kind of had to like go and examine the rug in the aftermath and say what the hell was that what was that moment um what was there like an aha moment for you during that 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 process where you felt like okay this is you know this is this is where things were unwinding this is why I wasn't hearing her or there's been a lot of sort of like not there's been a lot of like tiny-ish aha moments that have like built slowly um the closest thing to like a eureka moment that i had was i read about I'm still married at the time like she still lived here um was 
a book called How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It by doctors Patricia Love and Stephen Stassi. I don't know if you've ever encountered that before. No. It's, um, it's, it's kind of a men are from Mars, women are from Venus sort of thing, which not a lot of people are, are comfortable with conceptually. Um, and I get that. I, uh, gender stereotyping is particularly useful. Um, I try not to think about it like that. I, I try to say, I try to keep it math, like math based. Mm -hmm. It's if you're a man, you don't do this. If you're a woman, you don't do this by virtue of being male or female. But can we statistically observe certain things more often than not in male behavior and female behavior for the purposes of having an effective conversation about it? I try to like, try to, I try to think about it and communicate it that way. At any rate, this book, How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It, described scenarios in my relationship that felt like they had like a hidden spy camera, right? And I hear that about my writing. Mm -hmm. What that taught me, it taught me something very important. It taught me that these are not unique to me. They're not unique to my marriage. That these are widespread issues. And I get it today because I can have coaching conversations and people are like, this is unbelievable that you, like, you can like speak for my wife, like exactly without ever talking to her. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not psychic. I'm like, this is just, I've got such a large data sample at this point that things are sort of statistically likely to play out at this point, at least from my perspective. Um, that's how the authors were here, right? These two, um, you know, PhD, like family therapists had spent decades interviewing couples and accumulating data. And then they put this book together and it just happened to be the first one that resonated with me that said, Here's the thing, but I did, I did enter it seven years ago with kind of this like Mars Venus like premise and it wasn't particularly useful. It, um, it, it got me down the path, but um, at some point I, I think maybe it's an obstacle when you get too hung up on this idea of like the male brain and the female brain. I think that's a really dangerous way to sort of categorize things and, and it alienates people. Yeah, it's hard because it's, it's real, right? There's a real socialized construct that we're all born into, that we all participate in, that we all consume through media, that we all probably saw in our own homes growing up. That's right. Where, you know, most of our fathers probably didn't change a ton of diapers, right? Like it just was a different generation. And now we're seeing a whole different type of parenting. But I always think about, you know, parents and, and husbands and partners you didn't have those role models, right? So I think a lot of the angst that many moms feel, um, and I hear this a lot within my community, is kind of this, you know, we have to be the perfect mom. We have to have the Pinterest-ready snacks, and we have to do all of these things that are, you know, really Instagrammable. And the truth is we're trying to live up to this ridiculous ideal that we're putting on ourselves. And on the flip side of that, I think a lot of husbands and fathers don't necessarily have that behavior modeled for them in a way that's so easily accessible and in many ways is almost more approved to behave like that, right? You look at television shows, you look at, um, you know, any advertisements that are always targeting moms or women with cleaning products, with baby care, you know, all of these things tend to be geared into these gender stereotypes. And I think we're seeing it, the trend buck. Um, but what you're talking about in terms of, you know, you don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because you don't want it to become that 
risk of, well, that's because I don't do those things or I shouldn't have to do those things. It's kind of unpacking that, but there's a lot there. And it's not just about, you know, who's pulling their weight with organizing camp schedules and vacuuming and picking up dry cleaning. You know, it's, it's not as uh, kind of myopic and, and as simple as that. Or is it? I know. I, I agree. I, um, there is a really comprehensive, intelligent, detailed conversation that we have about this. And I don't dive too far because I'm not like a sociologist or a gender studies expert or anything like that. But basically what you just said, I agree with very strongly that a lot of boys grow up or at least our generation. And I don't know, give me how many decades you want to make that sort of like range. But yes, what did we see our fathers and our uncles and our grandfathers do? What did we see older boys do? What did we see our friends' parents do? And then what ideas and what do we see in like media? What did we see on television and in film? Um, and, and what were the stories that told about what it means to um, empathize, to embrace emotional intelligence, to feel, and then be vulnerable and authentic about it? Um, thing I've come to believe today that you can't have a successful relationship absent of emotional vulnerability and honesty with your partner. Mm -hmm. You might be able to sort of like get by in one that doesn't like end and crash and burn, but you don't get to have like an all the way cohesive, connected, where everybody has strong feelings of like safety and trust in the relationship if you are not emotionally honest and vulnerable with your partner. I don't think there's a path there without it. Yet, so many men feel this mental and physical almost like repulsion to that idea. Like a wall, um, yeah. And like they think it's wrong to even do it. I said this to somebody yesterday, and I can't remember who or what or why, but <laughs> where I come from in my little Ohio town growing up and, you know, playing football and basketball and running track and things like that, it wasn't bad to be female, ever. Being, there was nothing wrong with being female, but it was bad to be a guy who did things like a girl. Mm -hmm. Can you like appreciate that distinction? Absolutely. absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. If you're a guy and you do girl stuff, air quotes here, then you're, something's wrong with you. You're effeminate, you're different, you're weird. Yeah. And that, permeates so many things we say do and believe and I took so much of that maybe subconsciously into adulthood mm -hmm. and um I you know I mean that's not like the crux of what I worry about that's like the big part of like the work I do isn't trying to like break down these like like sort of gender barriers and stuff but I think it's a relevant part oh, yeah. of what um otherwise uh, well-intentioned and decent humans bring into their adult relationships that yeah. sort of accidentally compromises it. Yeah. It's, I always say my husband, I always describe him as an evolved man. You know, he, I, we did not know that he was going to end up being a primary caregiving dad. I did not know that he was, um, I mean, I knew he was a sensitive guy. He's a songwriter for God's sake. Like there's a lot that I could tell, but the way our life ended up is not how we, necessarily knew it was going to be and there's a part of that where you kind of grow and learn and make mistakes together and when you're unwinding kind of societal norms at that same time um that's where like you keep talking about rawness vulnerability emotional intelligence 
those are not messages that boys get at all. And, and it's, you know, hopefully we're, we're raising, you have a son as well. I do too. Yeah. We're raising boys that get that. Um, but it's a really, uh, it almost stunts them in their ability to explore that side of themselves. And in fact, even the emotional intelligence piece is becoming huge in the business world in that you are inherently a better leader, that you are inherently um, more likely to have higher team morale, have better results, all of this stuff, because you can connect with people on a very human level. Um, so it's kind of nice to see this shift. You know, I know you're not, I'm, I'm a big sociologist uh, person, but it's, it's nice to see this shift in some of these things that are becoming real topics in real rooms that will gain traction. I think that's why your blog post that it sounds like it was, you know, just a real cathartic exercise for you resonated with so many people once you shared that side. Yeah. So, right. It was, it's been seven years of very slowly exploring these like niche ideas within my relationship. The thing that I, the way I think about it and talk about it today, the thing I had to do to succeed at going from guy who accidentally sat, hurt his wife and sabotaged his marriage without intending to, right? Philosophically, I wanted to be married and I truly truly perceived myself to be somebody who like loved and honored his wife and wanted the marriage to work. And if meaning if you could have zapped into my brain, the things I believe today, I, I think I would have stepped up and did it. I, I was missing key pieces of information and key skills mm -hmm. in order to succeed. I, I didn't even have, yeah. I never had, a, I never had a chance. That's just the bottom line. And I'm not, Nobody else is responsible for that, no, um, but but I, but I didn't have a chance. Yeah. Yeah, and and when you're in that time of despair, like the, you know, nobody's really operating in their most functional selves, right? Nobody's sitting there in the heat of a marital argument, being like, "I'm going to be," you know, super profound and open and vulnerable and and supportive of you as I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, right? It doesn't happen in those moments. Um, was there ever anything, you know, was there ever a time, as we talked about earlier, kind of these aha moments where you look back and you thought, well, that might be, or, you know, for you personally, or the work that you do with other couples, like, what are the critical times that you see in a marriage that kind of need the most care? Is, are there like milestones or is it like indicative behaviors? Yes. And behaviors is how I think about it. Like, so in a perfect world, um, in a perfect world, I believe people would have clearly defined personal values and they would be able to have the uh, self-awareness and, and the courage, right, to like the, the self-love and just, just health and boundary enforcement necessary to say, I feel really bad when this happens and I'm going to make damn sure Anybody that I'm with in a romantic capacity understands that this isn't tolerable, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be kind about it. I mean, they don't, they're not doing it on purpose the first time. Mm -hmm. But how do we get to this place where, you know, people are dating for two or three years and these dynamics are at play, right? And everybody just kind of like looks the other way. And they end up getting married anyway. I guess they think it's going to be okay someday, that they're going to outgrow it. I don't know. I mean, it happened to me too. It, yeah. happened, to, it happened to my, my son's mother. How did we get there? So ideally, we would identify these, this isn't okay, and we would enforce it. And 
a relationship sort of doomed for failure the way that mine was, it never gets started. Yeah. Um, I think the relationship that never was is infinitely less tragic than the one that, you know, the what could have been that like breaks apart. Mm -hmm. um, don't subject yourself to mistreatment. Not even because like you're worth it, individual person, but also just the math of this. Like you don't get to have this peaceful, happy, content life when you are constantly feeling these like pains from someone else who again it's not because they're bad they, they they don't know yeah until they know they don't know until they know that this pattern okay so here's what usually happens right so what does that look like mechanically in a marriage you said you said um forgive me i forget like how you worded it but it's it's behavior that i think is the real scary thing mm -hmm. that i think people should be on the lookout for and so what does that look like in a relationship sense? Here's how I think it mostly looks most of the time at the risk of sounding like I'm being gender stereotyping. Usually it is the female partner, the wife or the girlfriend approaching in a heterosexual relationship, her boyfriend or her husband. And she's saying, hey, some shit happened and it made me feel bad. And I'm now right. I'm here to communicate this to you. Mm -hmm. Whatever it was, dish by the sink, the way something was handled with, like the baby earlier, the way you spoke to me in front of my sister four hours ago at the family gathering, it doesn't matter what it was. Um, but, but now she's like trying to communicate it because she knows it's a painful thing and she's trying to recruit her boyfriend or her husband to like understand it in the hopes that at the end of the conversation, the bad thing will be understood and that maybe it won't happen again in the future. Right. Right. right? But that's not, that's not how he takes it. So <laughs> These are, these are the three response patterns that I did virtually every time my wife tried to have a perfectly reasonable conversation with me um, where she was trying to like recruit me to not do things that hurt her anymore. The first way was she'd tell the story and I would say, it didn't happen like that. Like that's not what happened. And then I like reframe it the way I perceived it to be. And the conclusion of that little exchange is that her feelings don't matter because it's based on this like completely false story. The second way I would respond, and by the way, I perceive this to be like the thing everybody does. And this isn't unique to men, it's just usually. Um, the second way is she tells the story and I'm like, well, sure, that's what happened, but why are you going crazy about it? It's right. just exactly. a dish by the sink. Sane people don't care about one little dish sitting by the sink. That's not a, a rational like thought or reaction, you know? Maybe if you think about it and feel about it the way that I do, you won't have to feel bad anymore. Um, it sounds really condescending when I say it this way, but the truth is you don't have to be an asshole to communicate these ideas. You can be genuinely honest and loving and, and, and feel like you're trying to be respectful. And, and suggest that the story didn't happen the way she said yeah you can yeah. be honest and loving and well-intentioned and try to help your wife or girlfriend or romantic partner not feel bad about something you don't perceive to be harmful you're trying to recruit them to not feel bad about something you don't feel is worthy of feeling bad about it right. can be done with like intellectual and emotional honesty truly the third way and this is the really scary way i think in the context of relationship health the third way we respond commonly is we defend or justify or explain 
why, like maybe why we did something Mm -hmm. that is so innocent, right? It is like on the surface, I'm just going to help you understand the way I was thinking about it. Cause maybe if you get it, then you won't feel bad anymore because you'll see like how well thought out it was. And the real danger there is for the third version of this, we've invalidated all of the experiences and the feelings once again, which is sort of the really key part about um, not eroding trust in the relationship. But with this third way, this way in which we're explaining and justifying it, we're sort of doubling down on the bad thing. Not only are we not acknowledging, validating, seeking to understand why this was painful and demonstrating some level of like understanding so that it doesn't happen again in the future, we're not only not doing that, but we're sort of promising we're going to do it again. Right. In our efforts to defend and explain how yeah. intelligent this was, we more or less are communicating that in all future scenarios like this, we're going to do this again because of how much sense it makes. Right. And so really well-intentioned humans that are smart and kind and successful and conscientious and who value their marriage and their partner fall into this communication habit. And it will, not always, but it, I, I, I would say it's been mathematically demonstrated to end marriages to the tune of thousands per day, I think. Mm-hmm. Something as innocent as this conversation pattern between two people who are otherwise lovely and who love each other and who want to be married. And it's so subtle and nuanced, this, this like toxic communication pattern that happens. And that's what's really terrifying. So that's the great mission for me is people don't know that things that seem so benign, so innocent, so whatever, so dished by the sink that that's what's going to end their marriage. It's not going to be infidelity. It's not going to be physical abuse. It's not going to be gambling away the family savings. I mean, certainly those are things that happen, but they're outliers. Right. It happens in these everyday, otherwise innocent seeming behavior that are so easy to dismiss, which is why they're so easy to remain like invisible. And um, that terrifies me as someone who experienced divorce as a four-year-old and then had a parent and a step-parent divorce in my 20s and then have it happen to me as like a parent myself, I take it really, really seriously because nobody was awful, right? Everybody was pretty solid as a human being is concerned. So how does this keep happening? Yeah. I this think is so interesting. I arrived at. You know, I was just going to say, it's, it's, I'm also the child of divorce. My parents divorced when I was seven. Um, and we now, my husband and I hold the longest standing divorce of anybody in my family, um, which is, uh, you know, my, my grandparents actually divorced in the fifties, which was unheard of, particularly for a Roman Catholic family. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where you say when there's an obvious reason for the, you know, demise of a marriage, whether it's infidelity or financial betrayal or whatever, you know, obviously a physical or emotional abuse, that's very easy to put it in a box and nobody questions it. That's right. This is one of those things where it's, you know, I would imagine as you go outside your circle and probably what people struggle with the most in terms of making that ultimate decision to end a marriage based on these types of, of, you know, kind of more benign, but very consistent behaviors. It's got to be really hard to, you know, kind of get outside of, of, of your, your immediate family, go to your friends and, and colleagues and kind of 
people kind of want to know what's going on. You know, it's kind of this like, well, what happened? Well, it just didn't work out. Or, you know, like you said, like she didn't really divorce you because you left a dish on the sink, but it was indicative of all these other things. And I think you have such an amazing um, and important, like you've really pivoted your pain and your anguish into the betterment of others. And you you call divorce like our, our biggest social crisis, I think is what you said. Well, and then the reason I think that I want to be, I don't want to like... I don't want to offend anybody who is like really strong about like feels really strong things about a different cause. The reason I think that is because of the sheer volume of humans who experience this mm-hmm. while not doing anything wrong. There's all kinds of other social crises, but they're in my estimation, in my opinion, doesn't get to win, but there are very obvious wrongs being inflicted on there are true victims. And it's our job to fight for the people who are being harmed in all of these instances. And divorce, it's invisible to so many people. Mm-hmm. And what you just said is so interesting, the story. And I feel so awful. And again, I don't want to take this away from men. Some men feel this too. The terrifying part is some men feel this who are in this dynamic. They're sort of accidentally the like, the people like inflicting the most pain, but they don't know it. So they feel this like authentic, honest pain and rejection too. And then I don't want to try to take that away from them, but who I really identify with and feel awful about is the women in the scenario you just described. So you go outside to your friends and your family and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. This is such a difficult story to tell and they'll, they'll tell the story. And then people just look at him cross-eyed like, hey, he's a good guy. What are you thinking? Right. right. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't hit on you. He's got a good job. Everybody likes him. And so not only are you getting like shit on day after day after day after day, but now you're being judged by like your social circle and your extended family. And there's like legitimate judgment and rejection. The amount of courage it takes to leave this kind of marriage where you think he, God, I'm so sorry I'm making it gendery, but this is just the statistically most and common it's the example. Nature of this conversation, it, it comes up all the time. Thank you. Our doctor, so <laughs> I, at least I, I don't know. Maybe you would do have a doctor. I am not a doctor. No, I certainly, certainly don't. But but where you think he's a wonderful man and a great father, and you admire all of these like wonderful things he says and does and has given. But that doesn't negate that actual pain occurs mm-hmm. every day and that these paper cuts have added up mm-hmm. from year one to year five to year 15, however long it goes. And it just gets progressively worse and more painful every step of the way. And every single attempt to try to like stop that trend to, to heal and to like make this thing better and cohesive is met with this invalidation pattern. Right, those with, types of communication. With a yeah. kind smile, a kind, well-intentioned, dismissive, comfortable smile on his face. And I don't mean he's this gross sociopathic narcissist. I mean he honestly, truly, authentically does not see and feel the pain. Yeah, That was me. And so when you asked me at the beginning of this conversation what sort of triggered it, I finally felt something akin to what I imagined my wife feeling. Mm -hmm. Finally, right? 
I got like, let's call it a taste of my own medicine, so to speak. And that was such a valuable experience, even though it was very, very unpleasant. Um, I'm so glad. When you get back to that word empathy, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's being able to feel those things without having gone through them themselves. And I feel like that word, particularly now is being used a lot, but understanding it is a very, very different thing. It's an extraordinarily challenging thing to do, right? It's, it's, you know, I, I just, I would be curious to hear because I would imagine so many of our listeners and it's been found, you know, when it comes to, I kind of bundle everything into this, like, household logistics, right? Like the home manager when it comes to, you know, shredding the mail, doing the the camp signups, going to the grocery store, planning the meals, making the doctor's appointments, getting this form in, you know, all the shit that goes into running a household, it's a full-time job. Yes. And the majority of that does fall typically to women, you know, yes. again, another like generalization. Um, and there's been a lot of studies that in particular for breadwinning women, the more money that she makes past her partner, the less of these, call them chores, whatever you just, the, the you know, things that you need to make your household run, the less he will do and the more she will take on. So it's kind of like both parties are trying to compensate for kind of bucking what they see as their gender norms. And so this, there is a huge uh, sub community within the breadwinning women's kind of cohort that is struggling very much with this dynamic and very much with how to manage this. Now there's some great programs out there to help, you know, divvy up cards and talk about, you know, who's going to own like fully this piece or that piece. Um, What are some of the things that you encourage your, your patients or clients or your, um, coaches, I don't know what you call them. I call them clients. Definitely okay. not patients. Patients, yeah. See, there you go, make you a doctor again. Right? No, not, not one of those. The, the school of Bethany Baines. Um, <laughs> what are some of the things that you encourage them to employ? To because it seems like your anchor is less on the task and more Way less. On communication. Way less on the task. I um. The way I, it's very like psychology focused is the way that I, I've always thought about it. Um, because, well, and here's why. I don't want to dismiss this conversation about uh, the quote unquote, like invisible load, the mental load, emotional labor, whatever you want to label it as. But I, I, I share like your descriptor, the things needed to run and manage the household and family. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not always emotional. The, the, the task is just the task. The changing the cat litter or packing the kids' lunches for school or cleaning the bathtub, they have different emotional value from individual to individual and couple to couple. So I care about that. Uh, you know, color me somebody who believes in relativism, but I don't really give a shit about the dish by the sink, and I never will. What I care about is if a human being who I love and respect and honor and value cares about the dish. Mm-hmm. If she or he doesn't, then it's kind of a non-issue. Then the dish by the sink is an irrelevant conversation. Right. So with that person, my job as someone who loves and cares and respects, like loves and cares about them and respects them is what does matter to them. We get so hung up on these like specifics that I think we miss the, important, the more important conversation. 
So what do I talk to clients about? Um, I ask them, imagine like a notebook or literally get one out that's got like a vertical line down the middle. I'm like on the left side, I'd like you to like think about or visualize or literally write down the things that matter to your partner the most that affect or influence her positive or him, whoever, positively. What are the things, the most impactful ideas and or experiences that they can have that are positive, that are good, they're unique to them. These are not universal things. Mm-hmm. Whatever they are, they're, they're just, it's about knowing that human being. And then, and then the negative side. What are the things that, that negatively influence them or that scare them the most? They give them the most anxiety or who knows, right? Just everybody's lists are going to be different. Um, if you don't know those things, if you don't fundamentally know the stuff that creates pain, the stuff that creates pleasure, joy, inspires hope, builds trust in someone else, if you don't know their specific list, then you are a threat to accidentally, blindly hurt them. Hmm. You're, you're a threat to constantly be surprised. You know, you'll hear guys say, she's always like coming up with this new thing to complain about something I never see coming. And I'm like, guys, I'm like, when then they're always trying to like, how am I supposed to like account for these hundred different things? I'm like, it's, it's not a hundred different things. I'm like, it's one thing. Yeah. And it's, you, it's, 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 it exists in all hundred examples. And it's usually this idea this absence of like understanding this invisible list or what we can uh, boil down to this idea of considering your partner. A lot of women will say, I just want to feel like I'm with somebody who will consider me when he or she makes decisions. And I get that. I spent 13 years with somebody who never failed to factor in how the decisions, large and small, and I mean like the decision to like take chicken breasts out of the freezer for dinner like really like minor things she never failed to consider in all of her decisions me I was a a mathematical factor in her decision making process Mm -hmm. I on the other hand spent 13 years frequently just like living my life and my comfortable you know privilege and then and then acting sort of surprised anytime my failure to account for someone else's sensitivity right like just being yeah. like, whoa, defensive, and I didn't mean to do that. My crime was not doing something wrong. It wasn't. My crime, if we're going to label it that, was I never accepted responsibility for the idea of making sure with intentionality, with vigilance, that my wife was included in my decisions, large and small, over and over and over and over again. I, did, I, I only included her right when it like, occurred to me to do it. All the times it didn't occur to me to do it were moments of feeling emotionally neglected, emotionally abandoned, and, and, and just disrespected. And what a way to, like, dishonor somebody you promised they'll love and honor forever is this absence of consideration, this failure to make her relevant enough, important enough, um, cherished enough to just be part of, like, the algebraic equation I use to whatever I'm going to do next. I talked to this guy who uh, they had him and his wife work together. One of my clients, the new guy, one of my clients, him and his wife work together. They do like painting or something. So they spend all day together. And then they went home and they had dinner. And then after dinner, they're young, they're in their twenties. After dinner, he goes and he turns on like the PlayStation and he plays Call of Duty. And she got upset about it. And after like having the conversation, he discovered that she was upset about it because 
it was their first chance to like spend time together. And he was, he chose a video game and he didn't understand in like a math way how after a long day of like working together and after like a dinner table, like conversation, she didn't perceive him to have like spent time with her. Right. And this is such this, like this little, and I, I, I understand how yeah. two people can like look at that in a way that I couldn't 10 years ago when I was more or less the guy running off to do whatever I was doing. Right. Um, They're just missing each other, even though like, like he sees it that he's clocked some time and now this is his downtime. Yeah. And he's been with her all day. So he feels very connected to her and she That's doesn't right. feel connected to him until they have that meaningful time away from work. I, the whole practice of writing down I, the last, you know, five or so minutes where you talked about writing down what is going to have a very positive impact and what's going to have a very negative impact. Um, that is a really profound exercise. As as you were sharing that, I was thinking, I mean, I've been married to my husband. We just celebrated our 16-year anniversary. And uh, I can write those things down. Do I consider them in every decision? Well, you know, I mean, that's, but that's a really big part of loving somebody, right? And building a life with them, right? It's You go from this romance, you know, I think what happens in a lot of marriages is you start you know, you're dating and it's exciting. Obviously there's chemistry. All these things are ahead of you from, you know, the engagement to the wedding to when are you going to have a baby? When do you buy a house? Where are you going to live? You know, all these unknowns that just happen every, you know, few years. And it's a very exciting stage of life. And then you settle into, you know, at least for me, what was kind of my mid to late thirties and now into my mid forties of like, oh shit, okay, this is life, you know? And it, and it can feel like that Groundhog Day, even though we actually totally uprooted our life last year after we were so settled into everything we thought was going to be exactly the same for 12 years and then everything changed, which is good, but it's been, you know, we're just like, holy shit, we didn't see that coming. So how do you go through those things together and and kind of support one another? And that's why I think that that visual is such a gift of just, you know, even if it's, you know, Two two top things that you know are that critical to that person that you start to walk through your day with that consideration set, right? Like no one's just a long life for the ride with you. I mean, maybe your kids because they don't have a choice because they don't have a job. But like other than that, no one's really along for the ride. Like you have to in, ensure that they're that, that it's a true partnership. I I talked to uh, a seventy plus year old man who couldn't make that list after 35, 40 years almost of marriage. And I had to tell him, I'm like, respectfully, sir, you don't know your wife. I'm like, the reason you don't understand, the reason you're constantly blindsided by what you perceive to be new complaints, new pains, things that don't make sense to you, is because you don't have a comprehensive, nuanced understanding of who she is and what affects her. And so everybody is an expert at something. Everybody, or at a minimum, everybody has the thing they're best at, the mm-hmm. thing they have the most skill at or have the most knowledge about or have the most experience doing, right? The 10,000 hours or whatever. Uh, everybody's got like one or two things they're just sort of exceptional at in the context of their world and their life experiences. Isn't it fair? Isn't it fair to put the human being that we promise to like love forever into that bucket and say, okay, I'm going to, with the same 
vigilance and practice and intentionality that I learned how to be a mechanic or a surgeon or whatever we are. Can I understand my wife or my partner on, on a nuanced level like that? Can I have expertise, mastery of who they are and what impacts them? And I feel if we are working toward that, we are going to very organically never communicate that someone's invisible, that someone's mm -hmm. life experiences and emotional experiences are, are somehow in our blind spots. Like that will just not happen, A. But B, I think more importantly is we, we will no longer be surprised by the, I'm, 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 I'm always taken aback by how often men don't see this coming. The guy that went and played PlayStation after dinner, he's capable of getting to know his wife on a level where he can understand what was missing throughout the day painting together that could have helped achieve whatever quality time and emotional connection she needs from that relationship. Mm -hmm. And he, not moreover, could have anticipated this idea that in light of what had happened that day, the decision to go play this video game right after dinner would elicit like a negative feeling for her for one reason or another. And instead of being defensive and dismissing that as the emotional lunacy of like, right, your, your crazy wife with, you know, silly girl feelings. What if we really truly sought to understand what that's about? Why? There's always a why. It's right. not you play Call of Duty, your wife hurts. She complains about it. That's not, it's not, I leave dish by the sink and my petty, insane wife freaks out about it. That's not, that's not the story. There's something else going on there. A person who knows this list, these, these things that are unique to his or her partner um, that affect them positively and negatively on a, on a really nuanced, masterful level is someone who can anticipate their partner's needs in real time mm -hmm. without surprises, without blind spots. The way little kids run around and we know, oh my gosh, that sharp corner over there right. is like a potential danger. We gain that ability when with our partner, I don't mean to compare them to children, but we gain that ability with our partner when we can see the world that way, when we can see their life and we're, we're tuned in, like intentionally, you know, what's the difference? Well, we're tuned in with the child. We're like, our mind is turned on. We're paying attention. We're, we're giving energy to this idea of protecting that. Can't we do that on a different level for our partner? I don't think it requires that much vigilance, frankly. I think the, okay. the little child that's constantly a threat to her, his or herself is actually way more difficult work than right. being in tune with the mental and emotional and literal physical needs of, of your partner. Yeah, and you're also, you're, you're kind of trained when it's your child to care in that way. And you don't have that same, I mean, you do have the same level of responsibility. It's not as explicitly obvious that, you, you know, love isn't enough. The, the care is part of it, right? Like how, you know, knowing, and, and I think what you're saying is that the more you put these things into practice, then the more of a habit it becomes, right? You go into a new house, you don't know where the sharp corners are, then you learn where they are, and you put your hand out in front of them. But if you're, you know, you have to kind of put that work into the for the forefront. It's really like powerful visuals. When you when you talk to your clients, like how so how did this all happen? I mean, you wrote a blog post. Um, 
you got a lot of positive feedback. When did you decide, you know what, I'm going to start coaching people on this stuff? And so, all right. And so clarification, I've written hundreds and hundreds of blog posts. I started in <laughs> the summer of 2013 and have been just like writing. I have really slowed down a little bit the last couple of years. Um, but I've just written. So it was just this almost like this journal. And, and you, you, we talked about it earlier, this like, it's like this journey of self-discovery. And I like to think my writing and the thoughts and ideas included in said writing got, became more mature and evolved as we, as we progress. Uh, the coaching thing, there's a, there's a man named Mark Groves. He is a speaker and he is, you know, he writes a little bit. Um, he's pretty popular on Instagram, but he is kind of in this space, this personal development space. And it's, 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 it's human relationships and getting to know yourself. And I don't know, he's great. And I like him. And, uh, you know, he's kind of, he's just really authentic. And I like the whole, like, not afraid to, you know, use, use foul language, so to speak. I, that, those people, those people break through the noise for me. So I notice them. Um, anyway, Mark is one of them. And we don't, we're not like best friends or anything, but we've talked like four or five times. And he's the one that really like put the idea in my head about coaching um, because he did that before he became kind of an event organizer and a public speaker. Um, somebody who travels around and goes to, you know, different speaking events and things like that. Um, he was mostly coaching like this. And it was just, I don't know, something I tried and I'm so glad. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to, to need the coaching money um, very much longer because a lot of cool stuff's happening. But um, I want to keep doing it because it really matters to me to have conversations really just like the one we're having now, but where people are letting me in and I'm staying connected to real life right. for people. And um, it's so good on every level, selfishly and unselfishly. I, I really care about this mission of trying to make the quote unquote invisible visible. And, um, and then also it just is constantly feeding me with, new stories that I get to share to leverage for trying to like help other people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really, that's a, such a valuable resource. And, I, have to uh, say, I think that's, that's why I, I put this in my email to you too. I, I feel that um, kindred spirit with you because I, you know, my entire career as a working mom, I've never once reported into a working mother. So I never had that like, this is how it can look and this is how it can be done in a very like tangible way. And I certainly never had anybody talking to me about what it meant to be the breadwinner for your family um, or kind of leading a path in a really positive light of what that could look like. And I see it now as my, you know, my lot in life, you know, wonderfully to hopefully be that role model or be at least that, that, you know, one person that can talk about it candidly and be like, hey, here's the real shit. Here's the good stuff. And here's how you can kind of try to make it work. I don't have all the answers, but I know it was really hard for me. And I literally had no one, I had no platform, had no books. Every article I read was super negative or painted a really dismal picture of um, increased divorce, infidelity, all of these things that I was like, how is that the only story that's out there? <laughs> like, that can't be possible. And I can't tell you how many women. I, I know in my network now that are, you know, maybe 10, 15 years behind me and this gives them hope and it helps them feel seen and understood and, and 
Um, that's a lot of what I'm hearing from you. And I, I think that's why your message and your vulnerability probably resonates so well with both men and women who are really feeling like they're not, they're not hearing each other, not seeing each other. Um, how, so it sounds like you have a lot of cool stuff going on from, from what I read on your site and that you just alluded to. Um, is there anything you can share in terms of what's next or how people could get more engaged with your platform or learn more about what you do? We're still in like the place where I don't get to talk about very much of it, but that's I do. Exciting though. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It is. There, there's a book deal that's going to happen. Um, I need to deliver it in the next nine months. I'm really excited about it. Um, but the publishing house wants to have like a formal announcement this month, actually. They said in July. I don't know when that's going to happen. And I'm so new to all this that I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. But I, I don't know yeah. what a publishing house announcing a book deal looks and feels like, but it's very exciting. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't have to do the like 40, 45 hour a week corporate marketing grind after that, um, which I still do. I'm yeah, still like still regular job, work from home guy. Um, you know, I can't, I can't like just step away. I've got a, I've got a little boy that needs you know, health insurance. So until I can afford the private health insurance, I gotta, I gotta keep doing it. Um, but that's, um, I don't know. It's very exciting. And then there's like even like TV conversations, which is insane. That's awesome. It's insane. So we'll see. I would love to be actually where you are eventually. Um, I love having these conversations a lot. And is there a way to be the host of my own show or potentially a co-host with someone else Absolutely. where we can conduct these conversations and we can have guests and I really like that conceptually. I don't know what that would necessarily look like, but it's, I've, I've enjoyed every opportunity I've had to have yeah. conversations like the one you're affording me here. I really appreciate it because I, I enjoy it tremendously. Yeah. And I mean, I would love to stay connected on, on that path because I do think these, these narratives are really intertwined and it's really one of the more kind of, I think we're having a really meaningful interpersonal revolution right now. Um, I think COVID and everybody working from home, there's lots of talk as to whether or not this is making, you know, stay-at-home parents or primary care caregiving parents, is it making the invisible work more visible? Is it uh, straining relationships more when you're on top of each other all day, when you have partners where both are working and um, you've got kids at home? All of these things, I think, are really uh, bring a lot of these conversations to the forefront, and I think it's super that is the only way we will see change is if we keep talking about it. And the only way that we will see um, particularly the work that you do, and again, not to overgeneralize, but men in general are very hesitant to be vulnerable publicly. You know, it's a really uncomfortable thing. Yeah. And particularly when it's somebody saying that, you know, I personally fuck things up. Right. Like that's not easy for anyone to say. Um, and I think much less so uh, for men and publicly. And I think it's such a valuable gift that you are giving to so many people to do that. And I'm so glad to hear all the platform opportunities for you, because um, I can already think of so many people that I want to introduce you to. And I would you know, just love to continue this conversation because it's it's really tremendous work and it's very much uh as mine is, it, it's a labor of love. You're just like, oh, sure. wow, that path was rough. Let me help you get through that. <laughs> are we are we wrapping up here or are we, is it still like share idea time? 
Go ahead, share ideas. Hey, well, so you said something earlier that I thought was very important, and it's one of my favorite ideas that like help people. Um, you use the word habit. It's so important to me to detach this concept of character from this conflict pattern that happens because that's what induces like defensive reactions, this strong sense of wanting to like protect one's sense of self and their moral virtues and things like that. Because again, I don't perceive this to be about right and wrong. And I'm so glad you used the word habit earlier. There's an author named James Clear. He wrote Atomic Habits. I heard him interviewed on a couple podcasts. Sorry. No, it's just my daughter. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. And I'm sorry. Hold on one second. Miss, don't you? Give me like five minutes. I know, but go find daddy. What do you, sorry? There's no beeping in here. We will edit that out. It's, yeah, it's Take okay. the dog with you, honey. I'm sorry. Let's don't you dare. It's fine. Kid, the, the, she's Maybe more important than I am. We will edit that out. That is, that is for sure real life. She's, she's more important than I am. I, it's funny. It's, clients apologize all the time. I'm like, hey, your, your kids matter more. Yeah. It's like the point. Um, the habit thing is, is an important idea to me because it's, it's not about right, wrong, good, bad. It's, it's about taking like mindful discipline to recognize like this pattern and just take like a little responsibility for it. So I talked earlier about this, this process of the way men and I think people, but often men reply to their wives. And I think anybody listening will be like, okay, I get that. And maybe even within themselves. I mean, you may have like tons of female listeners that say, I do that too. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a habit. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, but this happens in a nanosecond. And I had to figure out what that was. Well, I, I don't think it's very hard to figure out what it was. Uh, my wife would come to me and she'd say, hey, Matt, you know, this thing happened and it felt really bad. She's right, trying to communicate this idea to recruit me to like, like help be part of the solution. So what was I doing that caused me to respond in one of those three invalidating ways that slowly led to the demise of my marriage, you know, through the erosion of like safety and trust in the relationship? Well, what happened was my brain was trying to evaluate whether she should or should not think and feel the things that she thinks and feel. I was, I was trying to decide, apparently, I mean, again, but like instantly, she had to meet my intellectual and emotional approval for me to empathize. If she, anytime she told me a story that didn't meet my standards, my beliefs, my interpretation of reality, I was replying in a way that was invalidating her every single time. So can I notice that I do this? I hope so, yes. Can I decide that's toxic and shitty for my marriage and hurts my wife and is gonna ultimately compromise my marriage? I think so, I hope so. And can I, can I, can I replace that habit the same way I can stop biting my nails or I can start working out every day or whatever. Can I do that? I think so. What's the useful thing to replace this like judgment, this evaluation process with? I think it's curiosity. I think it's, can we validate the emotion that our partner just shared? They said, hey, a thing happened. I felt bad. Can we be like, you were scared. You were angry. You were anxious. I totally give a shit about that. I'm really sorry that you felt that way. Instead of like challenging it, can we seek to understand so that we can 
take that positive and negative list and make them a little bit more accurate, a little bit more detailed. Right. Can we use this as an opportunity to have a more nuanced understanding of who our partner is and, and what impacts them, both good and bad, more? And so this thing, this little pattern that slowly chips away at like trust and love and safety in our relationships can be flip-flopped through this simple process, simple. It's, I think it requires a lot of mental discipline and a lot of effort, work, yeah. but we practice for who we want to be and it's okay to mess up. It's okay to catch yourself judging your partner's emotional reactions and, and challenging them and invalidating them and being like, oh shit. I'm doing the thing that I'm actively trying to not do anymore. I'm so sorry. That you can still sort of make the quote unquote mistake of like invalidating your partner in like a habitual way. And so long as you notice it and communicate it, you can restore trust again. Right. You can, you can make the same mistake. Yeah. And it can be, it could still be a positive moment in the context of trust erosion and or rebuilding trust in the relationship. And so all these guys are like, I'm so worried about all these moments that I'm not going to see coming. I'm like you don't have to. It's yeah. not about the event. It's not about the task. It's not about the specifics. It's one idea. It's can you consider your partner and your decisions and what that might look like in a moment where she or he's trying to communicate with you. Important ideas is eliminating this, this instant judgment you have and replacing it with validation and curiosity. I think it changes the world. And that might sound like psychobabble to some people, but I hope not. No, I don't. I think it's 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 the same way when you look at even like a diet, right? It's like if you go three weeks without sugar, the first couple of days are going to be the hardest, and then it becomes a habit, and your body's not craving it anymore. But you're going to constantly be thinking about it because you're knowing you know that you're trying not to do something, and so it's it's to me it just becomes these ways that we get trained into this rut of communication or rut of how our relationship flows, and it's like a retraining. But like you said, if you have the communication. You bring them along with you. This is that we now can collectively and, and talk about building trust and safety in a relationship. That's actually a whole new part of your relationship dynamic that you've just introduced through that. I, I believe in it so strongly. It's something I, I spend a lot of time talking about. I, uh, I frequently refer to this imaginary horizontal line with two data points, one being you, one being your partner. And, and, and thinking of the two dots and their relative closeness together being um, a sign of, of trust and connection and cohesiveness. And when, you know, the bonds between these two dots are very strong and very healthy and very stable and connected when they're close together. And then, and then as they move further apart, you start compromising the relative integrity of this relationship. So instead of trying to like win these small little battles every single day, over a dish or laundry or who runs the children to this or that. What if we prioritize this concept of moving the dots closer together? And then very organically, we're gonna be very mindful of like how we're speaking, how we're acting, what we're communicating. And so, I mean, you can't do this to somebody who's not engaged in the same conversation. Right, with my, with my coaching clients, my coaching clients are all in. So yeah. they're thinking about like serious, mindful ways to like, restore trust. And I'm like, if you can get behind this idea of you and your wife are dots on a line and you're just trying to move them closer together, you needn't fear any quote unquote mistakes per se, because you're always going to be able to communicate the important ideas, this idea of 
It's the invisibility and the invalidation over and over again and the reinforcement of the idea that you're never going to get it or care enough to, to meet her or him where they need you to be for the relationship to succeed. Like right. that's like, that's the thing that erodes the relationship. It's not about dishes per se. It's about, I don't believe I'm married to somebody who loves me or values me enough or, to just give a shit about what matters to me. Right. And that condition and relationships. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, it's such an important, and, and when you say it's obvious, and that's where I think you're saying the work comes from. Yeah. It's just like, oh, well, of course, that's how everybody would like to be treated. But then you go back into your normal life and your normal patterns, and it's just easier to do it the way you've always done it. And yes. that's I think, where you really start to, uh, yeah, really see the struggles. All right. I am going to wrap this up because I have a very uh, needy uh, little <laughs> human next to me. Um, listen, I hope this is the start of a lot of collaboration and, and friendship moving forward. I think you're doing excellent work. I'm so excited to keep following up on all the initiatives you have happening um, and help you in, in your journey um, you. any way that I can and support you. And thank you so much for making the time and responding as quickly as you did to my cold email. That's the best. Oh, please. It was my pleasure. And um, anyway, really flattered you had me. It was delightful to meet you. And I, every single thing you just said, um, same in reverse. Like, perfect. Look See, forward to communicating well together. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Matt. We'll talk soon. Don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast and hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review to give us direct feedback and also to get the podcast in front of more eyes. It's very much appreciated. I want you.